0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Hello, hello, happy 2023, and welcome to season five of the Queen of the Sciences podcast. And in order to start off this new year with a bang dad and I will be discussing vocation in the era of BS jobs. Now, as you have looked at the title of this episode on your podcast app, you have noticed that the word in fact is bull, then with four asterisks following. So we will try in this episode not to use the full word just in case there are little ears or tender ears around that should not hear the thing. I cannot absolutely guarantee I will never slip up. And there is a correlative term that drops off the word bull, uh, which we may need to invoke at least once in the podcast. So you have been warned. But anyway, so we are working from this book called BS Jobs by David Graeber, an anthropologist with anarchist leanings. Uh, might surprise you that we are found this such an important source text, but both Dad and I read this book and immediately caught into finally making the point of connection between the crisis in the Reformation doctrine of vocation, with we, which we both strongly adhered to, and our concerns generally about malaise and hopelessness and the workplace and the workforce. And this was very illuminating to us both. So we are going to work through this book and then try to figure out how we can speak from this Reformation doctrine of vocation to the situation of BS jobs. So dad, why don't you take us off and running toward vocation and why it matters here?
1: Thank you, Sarah. Um, you know, I just have to tell you a funny little anecdote. Um, we had a family reunion last summer and, uh, all of my little nep- nephews and nieces and their children were in the house. And one of the little boys was in my library looking around and he went to his mother and said, uncle Paul has a book with a dirty word on the cover. of
0: it." <laughs> oh, that's cute. I hadn't heard that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, really happened. Yeah. He, um, uh, He argued that many well-paying jobs in the current economy do nothing productive, and many others do positive harm. And he published an essay to that effect in 2011, which got a huge resonance. So subsequently, he did a lot of uh, research backing up the claim and invited testimonials, and most of the book he published in 1918 uh, uh, consists in... 2018. Excuse me, 2018. Most of the documentation and illustration of his claim is provided by these first person testimonials. But why is this um, of concern to theology, particularly in the Lutheran tradition? Well, you know, our peculiar doctrine of sanctification, which is sometimes called the priesthood of all believers, uh, and Uh, more uh, substantively called the doctrine of vocation or calling, the doctrine of being called by God to a particular work in the world. Um, This is how we understand um, the spirit's work of sanctification uh, who is in the business of making holy what is otherwise secular and profane. So the station at work in the world in Christ, by the Spirit, is transformed into a calling, a vocation of loving and truthful service to the neighbor. This is very important in the Reformation tradition, this understanding of vocation. Uh, Not only Lutheranism, but uh, the other magisterial Reformation, the Reformed, have a similar idea that we'll get to later on when we talk about the so-called Protestant work ethic. Uh, But I think, you know, uh, that uh, if it is in fact the case, as David Greber argues, in our current economy, uh, that uh, too many jobs are just plain BS, what does that do to the doctrine of vocation? How can you sanctify something that's insubstantial, that's not really there? Uh, I think that indicates there's a real crisis for us in the doctrine of vocation. And I suspect that one of the reasons why ideas of uh, uh, models of discipleship have become so current, uh, in a way rivaling even replacing the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers and vocation, uh, is that uh, people... people realize that the work they're doing in the world is so much BS. Uh, I've heard people tell me as uh, pastorally, uh, tell me as a pastor, I'm not good for much, but I can make a lot of money and that's what I do for the kingdom. So uh, I'm not very proud of what I do, but I do make a lot of money and I can pay for stuff, pastor. Um, And so this is kind of the problem that I want to get get focused on. Of course, we understand priesthood of all believers does not mean I get to be my own priest for me, myself, and I. It means I get to be in Christ, um, a sub-priest of the great high priest, um, uh, mediating the agape love of God in Christ to the neighbor in need, being a priest, not for myself, but on behalf of my neighbor, ministering, administering, the merciful and redemptive love of Christ. How is that possible, however, in an economy in which so many jobs are so much BS? That's the issue.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important to distinguish to from so the, the the example you often hear in this regard, like the kind of shock value example from the doctrine of vocation is saying that you can be an executioner to the glory of God because someone has to chop the head off the criminals that, you know, were marauding about the Holy Roman Empire. I remember hearing that example when I was young, even I ended up writing a, a short story with someone who found herself in a vocation that was somehow at odds with this high and holy calling, and she always wondered, like, what kind of God would call you to be the executioner? Yeah. But in in the way that Luther talks about that, that's actually not a BS job. It might be a Uh, listener be warned, a shit job, like a job that nobody actually really enjoys, but has to be done, necessary, like garbage collector or um, the person who deals with the the biohazards in the hospital, um, all those kind of jobs. They're lousy, they're not particularly pleasant, but they're actually necessary and essential. And I think the, the executioner point is that there can be even lousy jobs, nevertheless, that are necessary and you can glorify God in them. So what we're pursuing here is a category that it must have existed. Also at Luther's time, Um, Graeber, the author, makes a case that some of them have always been around to some degree. But what he's talking about is the extreme increase in the number of jobs that are purely BS, as well as a lot of BS creeping into um, other kind of jobs that didn't have so much before. Maybe, Dad, as a college professor, you'll speak to that a little bit down the line. But I think the point here that we're going to get at is that the nature of the BS in these jobs is that it is impossible to do well. Um, This is not a place where you can call upon your sense of uh, being a priest uh, with all the priests of the kingdom or pursuing sanctification or blooming where you're planted or all these things that under normal circumstances, people are exhorted to make the best of difficult situations. We're talking about jobs that are so soul deadening or actively harmful that you you can't like make the leap to make something good out of them. And I I have to say for me, this is why uh, I recommended this book to dad in the first place is because I I can't remember now how I came across it. But this was a real eye opener for me. Um, I have uh, mostly had jobs that were rewarding, uh, even if very challenging at times. And I've had a couple of lousy jobs, but I've never had a BS job. And this was um, a big wake up call for me to realize how much of that is out there. And dad, I think it explained to when you've talked about your students talking about wage slaves and, you know, longing for communism. And I was like, you know, communism is full of BS jobs. I had not realized uh, how many BS jobs there are in our economy as well. And so that's what Graeber really documents very well here.
1: Well, why don't you take us, he has five or six types of BS jobs in his typology. Um, And he's he's He reminds us this is not an exhaustive list. It's just what he inductively came up with as he looked at the testimonials that his 2011 essay elicited. Uh, And it might help help, um, our listeners understand more concretely what we're talking about if we briefly go through that list.
0: Yeah, this is really helpful. And he says this you No, know, you know, this is not statistical or quantitative analysis, but anthropologists deal often in what's more called qualitative analysis, which is thick descriptions of things. And in that respect, I think this what he finds is very telling. So first of all, let me give what his, is his working definition of a BS job. He says... A BS job is a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though, as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. And I'll just flag there it's the pretense that your work is valuable that seems to be the most soul-wrecking part of it. Um, If you could just admit that it was pointless to everyone that you work with and for, it would be fine. It's having to pretend that it's not BS. That's so destructive.
1: Uh, You know, let me just another little anecdote from my life. Uh, Many, many moons ago, when we were first married and desperate to make money, I took a job as a telemarketer for (laughs) one, exactly for one day. One of my friends... (laughs) had uh, told me, this is great, you know, it pays really well, it's really easy. And you know what I was doing? What? I was selling cemetery plots. Oh! And so I, I would cold call somebody and hit them with the question, have you considered how you're going to spend eternity? <laughs> and then if I, then, you know, you try to hook them into talking about this and I finally got someone to talk to me for five minutes, and uh, they said they'd get back to me and hung up. And before I could hang up, the creepy boss, who looked just like Boris Karlov came over the line and said, Well, you let that one get away. <laughs> oh, <laughs> And wow. I said, That's it. That's it. I can't do this. I can't deceive people and try to talk them into buying something that they don't really want or need not for me. And I quit.
0: So that, that is a great example of a BS job. Cause I know that you had some really lousy jobs, like the butcher job and the bus driver job, but like those were actually doing something of value to somebody. Uh, clearly right, the, exactly. the telemarketer job was exploitative from, I mean, with even the opening question proves that it's not like you were asking about their soul, you know? <laughs> okay.
1: But their mortal remains, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, so here is his uh, Graber's taxonomy of five different uh, the five major varieties of BS jobs. So number one, flunky. Flunky jobs are those that exist only or primarily to make someone else look or feel important. So the historic example of this is the entourage around the uh, king or nowadays around um, a celebrity or something just having lots of hangers on because you're so important you need buffers. But apparently a lot of corporate structures have managers who just need to have people working under them to make them look important even though those people don't actually do anything. The second category is a goon, people whose jobs uh, have an aggressive element but exist only because other people employ them. So he says, of course, you could think to a certain extent that, like, um, armies only exist because other countries have armies. If nobody had armies, there would be no armies at all. So it's a, a kind of standoff of aggression. But under it's under this category that he puts lobbyists, PR specialists, telemarketers, and corporate lawyers. So basically, it's a lot of um, money and unproductive labor to stop other people from doing things that you want to get at yourself.
1: It's manipulative, right? Yeah, yeah. you
0: hire someone else to do that for you. The third category is the duct taper. Duct tapers are employees whose jobs exist only because of a glitch or fault in the organization who are there to solve a problem that ought not to exist. So, for instance, incommensurate bureaucracies or even more than that, incommensurate software programs. He gives the rather heartbreaking example of programmers who program purely for the joy and fun of it and then share it through freeware or open access access software online um, and give their their programming value away for free then Companies take advantage of that. Uh, they they use the free software, but things are not compatible. So then they end up hiring programmers to find patches to fix up all the incompatibilities and make it work. So oddly, the companies will not hire people to program correctly in the first place, which is what the programmers would like to do, but only to fix the problems of using the free software in the first place. Uh, talk about a snake biting its tail there. Yeah, really uh then we come to box tickers uh these are jobs mainly as a result of government bureaucracies and various other sorts of regulations that so that a uh businesses need to prove that they're doing what they're supposed to do. So it's both the the act of, of proving um, and sometimes pretending to prove when you're not really proving. So box tickers refer to employees who exist only or primarily to allow an organization to be able to claim it is doing something that, in fact, it is not doing. Though I think there's quite a lot of jobs where you are proving what you are doing, but it is so completely... Um, Pointless and irritating. It's only there because the regulation exists. One example he gives as a uh, performance reviews and uh, some cynical employee says performance reviews are pointless because everyone knows who the slackers are. Um, I am required by my employment situation, um, by a certain state law to undergo anti-harassment training every year, which makes me Uh, angry on multiple levels and not because I am in favor of harassment. But once again, I would say everyone knows who the harassers are and, you know, people in authority should deal with the harassers, not make everybody go through a self-administered online course of anti-harassment training and thinks it makes the slightest bit of difference, but it allows them to tick the box of what the state requires. And then the final category is taskmasters. This has two subcategories. Type 1 contains those whose role consists entirely of assigning work to others, especially work that the underlings would be perfectly capable of discerning and carry out themselves. So rather than being unnecessary subordinates like a flunky, this is an unnecessary supervisor. And then the second kind of taskmaster is the one whose primary role is to create BS tasks for others to do, to supervise the BS, or even to create entirely new BS jobs. So (laughs) Graeber calls these BS generators. And then, um, th- so those are the five categories, but Graber also says, then think of all the secondary economies around people who hold these jobs. So for instance, people who are in any of these five categories and work so many hours at nothing that they can't afford to take their dog for a walk or cook their own food. So you have professional dog walkers or uh, takeout food or food delivery, things that exist only because other people are doing BS jobs, even though those jobs themselves like walking a dog or preparing and delivering food is not B.S. in and of itself, but it wouldn't exist probably to the same degree were it not for all the B.S. jobs.
1: That's a a good summary of his categories, and he admits there might be others that he hasn't thought of. Uh, What was stunning to me uh, after he discussed uh, these various categories of B.S. jobs is that in his uh, analysis, based on his research, he estimated that at least forty percent or more of the employment in our current American economy are b s jobs, and another twenty percent are those um, collateral or spin-off uh, b s jobs that support the structure and so this raises a hu- huge suspicion, doesn't it? Because this is not how capitalism is supposed to work who Who would <laughs> right. ever imagine a capitalist? paying people to do nothing or to uh, you know, uh, uh, puff up their own chests and, and, and parade off their corporate power or something like this. And um, what he says is, you know, uh, we, we make fun of the former Soviet Union and all the made-up uh, work uh, that went under their full employment um, uh, policy. And we heard when we lived in Europe, you know, in the former communist uh, Czechoslovakia, the common saying of the people was, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And,
1: and what he's saying is that the same thing is happening right now in the Western economic regimes. Uh, and it's the same need to have a, uh, a facade of full employment uh, to perpetuate A very, in Graber's mind, a very unjust distribution of the benefits of technological progress and automation. We'll get to that uh, more uh, to that later on, but I would just like to, at this point, uh, uh, mention a few of his thoughts on higher education, uh, which is very important to me. People may have listened to the bonus episode from last winter, um, uh, last December about my swan song, Farewell at Roanoke College, in which I raised some of these issues. And uh, uh, um, he, Graber himself, of course, is a professor, and he's worked as a professor. So he's on the inside of higher education when he makes these remarks, and I, I certainly resonate to them. Let me just give you a couple of samplings of his thought on this. He says, it's clear that there's a problem and the problem is getting worse. I don't think I know anyone who has had the same job for 30 years or more who doesn't feel that the BS quotient has increased over time, the time he or she has been doing it. I might add that this is certainly true of my own work as a professor. Teachers in higher education spend increasingly... Uh, huge amounts of time filling out administrative paperwork. That's end quote. Um, And I think what he has in mind here is uh, the administrative takeover uh, of university education uh, and the vast expansion of the administrative bureaucracy. And I experienced this in the convoluted business of so-called assessment, In other words, as if our actual grading of students, um, which is, were not um, a genuine assessment of how the students are doing and how we as teachers are succeeding with our students. But parallel to the entire grading system, the administrators required a brand new set of rubrics Assessing whether we were achieving our pedagogical goals, and this required enormous amounts of paperwork and quantification and scrutiny, and pap- and sending the reports up the chain, and then they get sent up to the to the uh, to the regional um, um, groups that accred- give accreditation to a school and so forth and so on. I just was amazed at the time how much time, energy, and financial resources were being spent on so-called assessment. Um, but it's even more serious f- for me. It's what this is doing to education and what it's doing to the young people that uh, are being educated as higher education accommodates itself to this BS economy. This is what Graber writes. Uh, it is not for nothing that I refer to the results as spiritual violence. The violence has affected our culture, our sensibilities. Above all, it has affected our youth. Young people in Europe and North America in particular, but increasingly throughout the world, are being psychologically prepared for useless jobs, trained in how to pretend to work, and then by various means shepherded into jobs that almost nobody really believes serve any meaningful purpose. I think that's a pretty damning indictment, and I think it's there's a lot of truth in it.
0: And I think from what you've told me, you, you've seen that despair in the students, especially in the last 10 years of your teaching.
1: Yes, and I... Uh, I also really despise what it's done to the liberal arts because when I began teaching, there was a genuine reverence for uh, professors in the humanities. And we were uh, admired and uh, 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 treated as um, mentors, leading young adults into the great conversation of civilization. Uh, And of course, at a very exciting time in which Western civilization was becoming more globally aware, more cross-culturally sensitive. It was all wonderful developments. And erudite professors who could uh, induct young people into this magnificent, expanding conversation were, were respected and treated well uh, by the students. But I witnessed over my career how students were increasingly assuming a consumerist mentality. In other words, I'm paying you to give me A's. And if you don't give me A's, you're a bad professor and I can punish you. You know, so that, I mean, I'm being a little bit um, exaggerating to make a point, but uh, I think the change that I'm describing is quite real.
0: I think it probably as much as anything, it's the parents who are shelling out for the very expensive college education (laughs) who wanted to see you deliver the A's. And probably the students were parroting that and their parents' anxiety about whether they'd find a job unless they got top grades.
1: Right. Okay, well, let's move on. That's just an illustration of BS jobs, how they affect higher education.
0: Well, I'd just like to say a few things. This is a little venturing out of our uh, our strengths and specialties, but I think it's worth saying a few more things about how many BS jobs can possibly exist. Because, like you said, this does not make sense in uh, capitalism as Adam Smith or even Karl Marx ever knew it. So, how this came about. So, uh, apologies to those who uh, who specialize in these things, but I think we have to explain at least to some degree where all these jobs are coming from, and we can go from there on to more our more proper domain of talking. About about the spiritual violence done and and how to get back to a real vocation for people. Um, So I I just have a a few things I I wanted to lift up. So um, one of them actually is automation. So there have been – this is a limited explanation, but it's an important one. There have been predictions from the beginning of the industrial age that lots of jobs would be lost – from, uh, to machines on the part of people. And um, everyone is familiar with the term Luddite, and it comes from those who smashed the looms because um, that was taking away the work of the weavers. And, um, you know, it's kind of a joke now. Like, you know, who who would even want to um, continue to do the, the back-breaking, finger-wrecking labor of weaving by hand when... Um, even on a, a hand loom when you could have a machine do it much more, more quickly and efficiently and then the weavers can go off and uh, do something different. And this happens again and again even now when people talk about a uh or there's concern about jobs being lost to, to robots and and machines. Like, well, but yeah, how great is that industrial job anyway? Um, so one thing Graeber makes, I had, I had not thought of this before, but it, it uh, got through to me this time, is that actually um, an automated loom to weave, to use the Luddite example, um, is actually making use of very ancient and widely shared human knowledge about how to weave cloth that has been shared shepherded, preserved, and guarded through long human experience by this group of people called weavers. And, you know, we know in the Middle Ages there were guilds that protected this kind of knowledge. And so if you look from the perspective just of making cloth faster produced and therefore more affordable for consumers, of course you have to say it's a good. But then um, this would, I guess, be the more kind of Marxist critique about the capitalist. What the capitalist does by building the automated loom is essentially steal this long tradition of shared knowledge guarded by weavers, um, extracts all the value, leaves them with no value left over whatsoever and no way to compensate for that. Um, And then it becomes basically distributed outward um, through the profits that the capitalist automated loom um, maker gets, with none of it going back to the people who've cared for this knowledge over a long period of time. And so if you look at it from that perspective, the critique makes a lot more sense to me. And this is what continually happens is that, of course, if the whole goal is to make things cheaper for people, and you know, if you read Charles Dickens, you know that it used to be hard to afford two shirts. So cheaper cloth that keep people clothed. It's hard to argue it from that point of view. But what you see is a narrowing and siphoning of the those who can make money off of this deep shared human knowledge. That's the problem from the producer's point of view. And the idea has been that, well, producers who lose their specialty are compensated by the fact that not just cloth, but millions of things they can buy really cheap now in a way that they never could before. So that's one aspect of why jobs have vanished. And therefore, there has to be something to take the place of all these workers who now have lost their specialty, and that has repeated itself again and again and again.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good analysis. It's basically um, dependent upon the labor theory of value that both Smith and Marx uh, uh, appealed to, that, um, that what gives any product its value is the human labor, that both intellectual and physical, uh, that goes into tr- transforming raw material into something use- socially useful. Um, and uh, the critique, of course, I- that you're talking about here is that uh, super added value that comes from human labor, uh, which has accumulated through the generations, suddenly gets extracted uh, out of uh, the working uh human labor and, and transformed into liquid capital that can then be legally possessed by the increasing the small class of capital owners and investors.
0: Yeah, I would make it a little more specific than that maybe is that it is the knowledge that was preserved by the laborers. The knowledge can be lifted and extracted, which then renders the labor valueless of the original laborers. And it's true that knowledge travels faster than anything else. And so nowadays, you often hear complaints about how China has stolen all sorts of intellectual property developed in the West, and now they are making industrially what they didn't come up with themselves. Well, that's actually the same same complaint that the Luddites had hundreds of years ago.
1: Right, right. And uh, so what is Grub- Grubber's uh, analysis here? It's it's not, strictly speaking, uh, um, um, a classical Marxist analysis. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, basically, he argues that corporate capitalism, which specializes in this kind of value extraction, uh, you know, it buys up a factory, um, um, uh, sells sells the, the machinery and the furniture, exports the jobs overseas, leaving behind an empty shell and turns a profit for its investors. And that's the kind of thing that has gutted the industrial um, working class, especially in the United States. Corporate capitalism working along those lines. And and, and Greber argues basically that the corporate capitalists realize that in order to keep the game going, they've got to buy off a lot of, 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 of people with BS jobs. They've got, to, they've got to at least somehow share the wealth so that there's not a revolutionary situation and people don't realize how they're being exploited. So he says corporate capitalism has become something neither Smith nor Marx would ever recognize, a big money laundering scheme in which the massive profitability uh, produced by technological advancement, automation, robotization, have been captured by financial oligarchs and distributed like stolen loot uh, to pacify the masses and keep the game going.
0: And but then he says the only way this works is if the state is totally in bed with the corporate capitalists in doing this. And so he says, you know, again, classically, what what Adam Smith was imagining is actually distinct spheres of politics and economy. In fact, I was thinking as I read this, we talked about you know the important discovery through the Reformation was that you had to separate church from state. But I feel like what we're at the point of now is once again needing to separate economy. From states, Um, people often fear that the problem is there isn't enough government regulation. But uh, Graber's critique would be much like, much more to the point that there is so much entanglements of uh, the 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 um, value extracting, debt trading, risk speculating, finance capitalism with the state that, especially in the U.S., both parties are so deeply embedded in it that, in fact, what we're looking at is something weirdly like. the, the the communist countries' total merger of the state and and the economy, and so then the way that the uh, the government helps is by creating systems basically of rent seeking or compliance or regulation in which the the stolen wealth is redistributed through these BS jobs of meeting up with um you know having to t- tick these boxes or you know solve these little problems that could be better solved, and so that's how uh it's a redistribution distribution system, but not based on fairness, more on um, handing back enough of the loot to prevent the revolution. At least that's Graeber's um, larger suspicion. Um, I, I'm not entirely convinced by that, but I there's something to it, I think, in what he's arguing.
1: Yeah, I think that's very interesting because he's, he's self-described as an anarchist, which means he's anti-statist, which means he's kind of like a libertarian in some ways. Um, I see him as a utopian Marxist. Uh, He reads Marx in an anarchist direction uh, that is against the Lenin-Stalin line of development of Marxism. And I think that makes his views on the labor theory of value, human nature, and religion very interesting. Uh, Just let me flag something about the labor theory of value He says there's a fatal flaw in the labor theory of value as it was classically used by Smith and Marx um, to describe the rising industrial economy in which it focused solely on productivity, the transformation of raw materials into useful products that I mentioned earlier. He says what this focus obscures is how much human labor exists in the form of caring caring for others Um, and he thinks here typically of the pre-modern housewife who takes care of the domestic economy who cares and nurtures feeds clothes and bathes you know the the children and educates them and all this um, typically what used to be thought of as women's work was systematically uh, um, obscured from view it wasn't regarded as productive productive labor I think he's got a great point there, and I think what he misses is that's exactly Luther's point, especially in the doctrine of vocation, that every station in life, every job should become in Christ a way of caring for the neighbor. Of course, Graeber has no knowledge of Luther or the doctrine of vocation, uh, but I think this becomes relevant in a little while when we talk about his views on religion.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think this is a hugely important point because he says what people often don't understand is that most working class jobs have not been industrial or productive over the centuries and that, in fact, those kind of jobs have remained relatively stable. Far more of working class work has been caring work, as he calls it. He gives us a list of uh, maids, bootblacks, dustmen, cooks, nurses, cabbies, schoolteachers, prostitutes, caretakers, costermongers um, uh, jobs uh, archetypically that we think of as women's work, such as looking after people, seeing to their wants and needs, explaining, reassuring, anticipating what the boss wants or is thinking, not to mention caring for, monitoring, and maintaining plants, animals, machines, and other objects, etc. And I think what's so important about this in particular is that, um, is that these are not things that can be resold. So if you think about cleaning, cleaning is absolutely necessary, but it has to be done uh, again and again. And when one set of cleaning is done, it isn't something that you can pick up and then resell, like you can with a made object. Right. Or caring for a child on day one does not in any way translate to caring for a child on day two. Uh, It has to be done again and again. It's repetitive work and it cannot be resold. Whereas if you make something... um, manufacture or produce something there is an ongoing existence to it and so that makes for a very different kind of work and like you said if you think only in terms of productivity or creation or transformation of objects you miss all of that kind of work and i think this is also really important the, the as you said the overlooking of the caring uh, aspect of work in the labor theory of value because i think part of also what has happened is our transformation in mindset first of all because of the enormously increased scale. Human beings across the world have to be aware of and interact with far more human beings than we are actually capable of doing effectively. So we end up having things like bureaucracies or policies because you cannot have personal decision-making and contact, but also because all of the automation and the rise of science has made us tend to quantify everything. Again, I think partly to solve the problem of scale, but as we talked about... um, a while ago now in Jaron Lanier's uh, You Are Not a Gadget, like computer thinking has infected our human thinking. And we start to believe that people, um, situations, human experiences, and especially work can all be described in a way that allows them to be quantified and assessed. And I think one of Graeber's big points here is how much of what even work is, much less what humans is, are not quantifiable realities. So there are real problems we're dealing with, like scale and automation, but a lot of the solutions that we bring to them uh, greatly exacerbate the problem because they obscure to us what's really going on, like caring labor as opposed to productive labor.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I think this analysis is so important, and it's one of the reasons why he describes so many of the BS jobs as soul numbing, soul destroying, because what gives value to our labor is the belief and the experience of serving our neighbors, of doing something that matters in terms of care for others. And when we are robbed of that, we know that we're fakes. We know that what we're doing is BS. Uh, and and this is, it leads us to a very uh, uh, conflicted uh, self that says, I'm doing it for the money, but God, I hate what I'm doing, and I find no meaning in it. And how many people are in that predicament? That's one of his profounder psychological points. But let's move on, Sarah, to the discussion, his discussion of human nature, because I think that's interesting.
0: Okay, lead us away there then.
1: Well, he posits two essential characteristics of humanity, sociability and agency. Uh, And sociability, I think, is taken straight out of the early Marx, who argued that after capitalist alienation is overcome, the essentially social essence of humanity will be liberated and flourish. We will all be people people rather than thing people. Uh, um, So this is a kind of why I called him a utopian Marxist, because (laughs) this humanistic idea of human sociability is very important to him. It's important to me, who's a theologian of the beloved community, too. Uh, (laughs)
0: Right. Well, and part of this is that he really wants to push back against the idea that if people are not forced to keep busy by having to have a job to pay for their livelihood, they'll just do absolutely nothing. He's, He's confident that the vast majority of people will find some good way to occupy themselves and will create and do interesting things and spend time with others in very positive ways. And so he really hates a political assumption that most people are lazy and exploitative and that's why you have to keep them busy with jobs or uh, humiliate them if they're not working with the insinuation that they are lazy.
1: Right. And we'll get into that more a little bit when we get on the Protestant work ethic that he is critical of and so forth. The second aspect of human uh, nature for him is agency. And this is inspired by the French philosopher Michel Foucault's Uh, Analysis of Power, and it's basically following Nietzsche's idea of the will to power, um, which can be more charitably understood as the happiness humans experience in seeing what difference one makes in the world by your own actions.
0: He also draws on human developments and discoveries like uh, the what happens when babies discover that they can affect the world around them. They are delighted and they seek to repeat the experience again and again, right. and that yep. human beings who are deprived... Any attempt to alter their environment, uh, most extremely like in solitary confinement, it not only does psychological damage, it does physical damage. It even causes brain damage if you are deprived of the ability to affect your surroundings in any way. So this is a very deep aspect of what it means to be human.
1: You know, we live out in the country, and uh, unfortunately, the people who drive down our country road can be real pigs throwing trash out into the uh, into the road, and every so often uh, the sheriff's office brings the prisoners from the county jail out on work crews, and you can see them in their prison outfits in their big orange bags and sticks with a poker on the end to pick up the cans and the and the plastic trash and so forth and so on. And that's an illustration of what he means. Would they rather sit in their jail and watch television all day, or do they jump at the chance to get out and do something in the world? Um, I'm not as humiliating com- as it is.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I'm, I'm not making any comment about uh, the criminal justice system. I'm just illustrating his point, right? about agency, about being seeing that you can actually physically change the world by your actions. So let's go on to religion. Tell us about his views on religion, sir.
0: So this uh, is clearly the point where we're going to have um, strongest disagreements with his interpretation. He seems to have kind of adopted a sort of shallow Weber, you know, uh, protestant work ethic leads rise to gives rise to capitalism because you know your your wealth is proof of god's favor or something like that and um he also describes a kind of dual attitude towards work found in religion both as like your creative vocation together with god but also your subjugation and drudgery as a punishment for sin and you know there's there's reason to find both of those in the scripture they're th- both so, seem to be real human experiences of work. Um, What he suggests is that there's something about the rise of um, Protestantism in particular that sees um, work so important for the formation of character that there's real moral panic about people not having work. And then therefore there's a strong social and ultimately political drive to keep people working. Though interestingly, he does complicate this and, and flesh it out by talking about the setting of northern Europe which had extended apprentices from late childhood through probably one's 20s as late as up to 30 in which basically you were sent out of your home to work in someone else's home and you were you were a servant um, but that is how you grew up but the goal and you were paid for it but the goal was for you to save enough of what you were paid that around you know by your late 20s you would be able to marry you would set up your own household you would have your your own capital, and then you would be your own boss, as we would say now, you'd be self-employed, and then you would take in other people and train them into adulthood. So there was already the strong Northern European understanding that work does actually make you grow up, but with the idea that paid work comes to an end, in time you will be the uh, person paying somewhere else, someone else, and uh, Graeber even uh, cites something of Abraham Lincoln talking about exactly this idea right. that that America opened up this possibility again that had closed down. I think essentially by the idea that in Europe, um, all all like the land and capital was locked up through aristocratic tradition, the lack of a free market, free labor, and so kind of America brings back the possibility of people um, rising in prominence. And wealth, but also in maturity and responsibility. And so kind of that whole complex lies behind current moral panics about people like getting money, but not doing the work that makes them grow up.
1: Right. And, you know, this model, this medieval model that you just described from Grubber, I think is the kind of the, the social vision that is behind the Lutheran doctrine of vocation you know that you, you there's a certain amount of social mobility here that with uh, discipline and self-work one can uh, arise up from one's peasant origins as luther himself experienced his father uh, made did well in mining uh, enough to uh, uh, finance his uh, very smart sons university education thus his wrath when martin decided to go become a monk and and squander the family's future fortunes in some unproductive like that.
0: labor if ever there was one praying right, what right,
1: <laughs> right so anyway i mean this 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 is a very interesting discussion he has there his religious critique is then that drudgery becomes the perfectly just medium uh, for salvation through self-sacrifice. That, that's kind of, the, and he calls this a kind of sadomasochism, that uh, drudgery is how we pay for our sins uh, and in the process redeem ourselves from uh, our sinfulness or something like that.
0: Which mm. then leads to a further perverse outcome, which is that if you are doing work that you enjoy or that is truly morally valuable, then you shouldn't be paid for it or you should be paid less for it or asking money for the value you contribute is deeply obnoxious. And so there's a kind of like a – I don't know, like this this Kantian aspect of it that, of, uh, <laughs> that you should – The the, the more pay accrues to people who do more hateful work and the more you enjoy your work, the less you should be paid for it
1: right really perverse isn't it yeah but you know <laughs> yeah. i
0: actually yeah. i would just like to make a make a comment here of my own experience because when i i set up my my press and you know started offering my books for sale um i started to have to think about my own attitude towards paying for other people's art and the, for me this started with why am i angry that an ebook um, costs, if an ebook is costly as opposed to really cheap, and I would, uh, as opposed to a print book. Like, so I realized for, to some degree, I thought that the costliness of a print book was legitimate because I was getting an object, but the costliness of an ebook is an outrage because after all, all I'm getting is the license to read a digital file. I don't even own it, and I certainly don't get the paper. But then I thought to myself, well, then the idea is that the paper is valuable, not the content or the work that the author did to bring me that book. That is a really bizarre attitude to take. And then I started to think, well, is there some kind of resentment that even I as a writer feel towards other writers charging money for their books because they just made it up? And, you know, that is that is a funny thing about, about uh, like uh, written work or I think also um, c- like composing a tune or something. We have a, maybe because of this bias of the labor theory of value, we think that, um, that the that transformation of a thing that then a consumer can buy and possess is something worth paying for. But the idea that anyone should pay me for a story that I came up with or a musician for a tune that you can sing somehow seems deeply outrageous. And the fact that so much music is pirated, I think, is proof that people don't think the music is worth paying for. They might pay for like the concert for the experience or for the T-shirt or for the paraphernalia, but not for the music itself. And I think there is related to that, what Graeber points out is this sense of, if you have have the joy and pleasure uh, and ability to create out of nothing, you know, a story or a tune, um, how dare you ask me to pay for it? You should just give it away because you have already accrued all the value in the creation of it itself. And that's deeply tied to this idea that um, drudgery is more worth getting paid for because otherwise the necessary drudgery wouldn't happen. But also it's like compensation for hating your job. Whereas if you love your job, you don't really deserve money on top of the enjoyment.
1: And of course, that whole sadomasochistic syndrome simply reinforces the existence of BS jobs and uh, and the salaries that BS jobs pull down for producing nothing or even positively causing harm, according to his analysis. Right. You know, Nobody uh,
0: quits a, a well-paid BS job to go become a, you know, a composer or a poet, because even if poetry and songs contribute far more actual value to the world's enjoyment, no one's going to give you money for it. You can't live off of that, but you can live off the BS job. That's the deep perversion that is so offensive to him. And I have to say now to me as well.
1: You know, one of the things I like about Grubber is that even though his roots are kind of in utopian or early humanistic uh, Marx or something like that, Um, he recognizes that the usual critiques of capitalism are off base, and he recognizes the BS nature of real existing socialism. And I think this would lead him to a deeper analysis of the uh, ideology of BS jobs than blaming it on the Protestant work ethic uh, or this uh, ideologized form of it in the sadomasochistic attitudes he's critiquing. Because both socialism and capitalism uh, were sibling rivals uh, emerging out of early modernity. They were predicated upon anthropological dualism, mind versus uh, muscle. Uh, uh, And um, in this uh, dualism, was was predicated upon the notion that our problems are that nature doesn't care for us. We must conquer nature in order to provide for humanity. But of course, hidden in that idea is the fact that human nature is part of nature, that human bodies are parts of nature. And then they can be, by this thinking, treated as raw material infinitely malleable, capable of enlightened re-engineering. So this is is kind of the disaster that I think he's pointed out has happened in the parallel developments between real existing socialism and uh, late corporate capitalism as we're experiencing it right now. Um, So he, you know, he has kind of here a Sarah thought experiment. Why, if we can simply imagine everything I've said, all these BS jobs, how miserable we are, how dehumanizing it all is, uh, why not just say technology and automation have advanced sufficiently that they can pay for basic universal income and thus sever the strong connection between work and livelihood? Why not? Why not imagine? We'll sing with John Lennon, imagine, right? And and just what, if we can imagine that, why don't we do it? And I think this leads him in directly into the conundrum that he talks about any number of times in the book.
0: Hmm. Well, let's begin with the observation that I did not cotton to until Andrew, my husband, pointed out to me, Imagine is actually the most depressing dirge you have ever heard. I don't understand why it is still such an anthem. It is the bleakest vision with a sad tune. And if you see the video of them recording it, they are just the most humorless ideologues that you can imagine, Uh, you know, you you. you, (laughs) Ha ha. You can imagine. They really are. So, um, yes, utopianisms don't work because people are people. So I really appreciated Graeber's um, sticking up for people's preference for freedom, for caring, for sociability, for agency. Um, But there is kind of a quality to which, you know, like... Everybody is fine except for the bad guys at the top. And he he sometimes gets closer to, like, what is it within human beings that continually submit to this or won't change it. And some of those are good uh, qualities in people, and some of those are bad. I don't think he's, he's quite um, – fair enough about the bad, but maybe that's because, um, you know, the the humiliators and power are always making us out to be bad. Um, but let, let's start with the positive. One reason that we stay in our system and do not undertake revolutionary carnage is because we love people. And he says there's a reason why um, unattached teenagers tend to be activist ideologues. And when they get married and have children, they suddenly change their tune because they start caring for other people and for little people and for animals and for objects that have come into their care. And um, to radically change the system is to endanger everyone that you love. And, you know, I think there's something kind of beautiful and tragic, but also wise and necessary about um, if, it, if it isn't totally broke, um, fixing it might just make it totally broke after all.
1: Right, Sarah. This is a direct quote along those line, lines. Love for others, people, animals, landscapes, regularly requires the maintenance of institutional structures one might otherwise despise, end quote. Yeah, that, that really is a kind of a tragic um, articulation of a conundrum that he, I think, with intellectual honesty faces. But now here, this gets theologically interesting. He also acknowledges in this vein, darker reasons for the for the what what energizes this economic system of bs jobs namely envy he says envy makes the world go round and that if that's true the real dividing line is not then the so-called protestant work ethic which has corrupted our attitudes towards labor and blinded us to caring labor and valorized productive labor. Uh, uh, but what happened to that medieval Christian inheritance that he so that you so lovingly described, right, was the Industrial Revolution, the uprooting of the peasant classes and their transformation into the industrial proletariat. And then the rise of social Darwinism to justify these exploitative economic relationships. Um, And that has produced our genuinely perverse, here's another quote, bizarre sadomasochistic dialectic whereby we feel that pain in the workplace is the only possible justification for our furtive consumer pleasures. (laughs) Whoa. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and so this is where I would also like to expand. I I really did appreciate how how he thinks human beings can handle more freedom than they usually get. And I I have become, as I have aged, more and more committed to human freedom. But I don't think he gives enough credence to how, how people... I think both grow into freedom. I don't think it's necessarily something you have a natural taste for, but also how even free people need necessity laid upon them. Like, uh, Part of the freedom I can have vis-a-vis economy or state comes from the necessity laid upon me that I freely undertook to be married to one specific person and together for us to raise our child. And there is, in my life here in Japan, the fact that I am needed to show up every Sunday at church has been absolutely necessary to my mental health, quite apart from the value of the work itself. Needing to be needed has been really important to me. And um, I think he underestimates the degree to which people who don't have some kind of necessity laid upon them, in addition to like genuine freedom, are not necessarily going to use their freedom in um, affirming ways. Now, again, it's probably in certain political uh, and social reformer circles overemphasized that people are lazy. But I think if we look at the degree of drug addiction that is existent in the world today, how much time people spend, uh, especially increasingly young men playing video games, how everyone is addicted to social media, uh, the use of pornography. Um, I think there's a, a real sense in which, like you said, this connection between furtive consumer pleasures, uh, compensating for BS jobs. But I also think because without being actively needed by yourself or others to provide for yourself, there is there, it's not so much laziness as, um, what it takes to be a producer rather than a consumer, it actually requires an enormous amount of self-discipline and silencing the internal voices of criticism. It's much easier to consume than to produce. And if you produce, there's no guarantee that anyone wants what you have. So if you are, are uh, desperate and unnecessary, one of the few things you can do to make yourself feel better is to be selective in your consumption that then places you automatically in that group with the other consumer. And you don't have to go through the genuinely demanding and no guarantee of success process of becoming a creative producer yourself. I don't think he gives enough time to that. And again, I think it's because he's trying to avoid the moralists who just say laziness, which I don't think is right either.
1: Right. It's much more a matter of alienation than laziness, uh, I would think, given his... um, his uh, roots in in Hegel's social philosophy and uh Marx's social theory. Well, and he um, also
0: says how often like people who have BS jobs that don't require them to do anything, basically they can do whatever they want all day. They can't bring themselves to do it. The so, the spiritual condition of being in the BS job is so terrible that they can't even take advantage of the money and time to do something else. Uh, so I, I think that's part of what makes a BS job so incredibly terrible is you can't even take advantage of it. <laughs>
1: Right, it's disempowering. It's it's literally disempowering, isn't it? Uh, even though you're compensated highly monetarily in, off, in many of these BS jobs, what they it's soul numbing. It, it it robs you of your agency, uh, and it forces you to pretend that you're enjoying it. That's why I think, as we're drawing this discussion to a conclusion, and to make a theological punchline, I think his. Concluding discussion of Michel Foucault uh, is uh, is really uh, helpful to us because he, he's grasping after a kind of distinction about power that you and I discussed in our podcast on Hannah Arendt, uh, the the distinction between power and violence. And uh, here's a direct quote from Foucault that Graber cites: "Power is not an evil." power is strategic games. To exercise power over another is sort of an open strategic game where things could be reversed. That is not evil. That is part of love, passion, of sexual pleasure. This is as opposed to trying to determine the conduct of others and the states of domination, which are what we ordinarily call power. Uh, so he's grasping after a distinction between genuine power, which is the exercise of agency, the delight, the joy we take in seeing that we can do something and make a difference in the world, and violence, which is a use of our agency to dominate and control other human beings in order to enhance ourselves. And he's, then Graeber makes this comment, All of the gratuitous sadism of the workplace politics depends on one's inability to say, I quit, and feel no economic consequences. That's why he proposes basic uh, universal income, which would empower people to say no to the BS.
0: Yeah, we shouldn't get too far afield because he himself says that people tend to take policy suggestions like that is the real point of the book, and he says it's not the real point of the book. I would have my own reservations about UBI for different reasons, but um, I, I can see the point is is by decoupling livelihood or survival from work, you give people a, a kind of leverage that they basically don't have when pro- BS jobs proliferate.
1: Right. And you know, I, you're right to, to point out that that he's reluctant to be understood as making a policy recommendation. He's really trying to make us think about what's gone so terribly wrong in the present state uh, of uh, of Western economies, uh, and to the opposing argument that. Uh, he's opening the door to everyone gaming the system. He poses this counter question. How could they possibly end up with the distri- distribution of labor more inefficient than the one that we already have? Let's <laughs> think about, yeah, let's think about I think what that a is genu- a
0: very valid question.
1: <laughs> right. And then he says, so let's think about, that's the point, not a particular policy proposal. But let's think together philosophically uh, about what a genuinely free society might actually be like. And that, I think, Sarah, segues to, to our theological purpose, right? That's the Apostle Paul's question in the letter to the Galatians. Why do we desire our own subjugation? Why are we willing to sell our souls to BS jobs for the sake of accumulating useless toys at the price of deep down, despising ourselves for for doing that. Why do we do that?
0: Well, I mean, I I think part of it circles back to his point about love, because people identify not only with the families that they're trying to provide for, but for a larger community and class to some degree. And there's a self-reinforcing cycle there. If the people around you are accumulating and consuming to some degree, if you are not on board with them, then you lose out the sociability. So, I mean, there's clearly a lot of exploitative work that goes on in, in adverse advertising and in a consumer society trying to get people to uh, accumulate things and to work at soulless jobs in order to accumulate but i don't think it it's i think it's the the tragic mix of both the the genuine uh, concupiscence <laughs> of the human soul and the aversion to the risk of being producers rather than consumers but i also think it's a desire to to uh please your children and to delight them and to be able to do things with friends who are also accumulating and consuming these things. I don't think it's quite so easily, those two things are so easily disentangled.
1: Well, maybe we'll have to pursue uh, this question a little bit further this year, because um, um, I think that the lack of an obvious compelling alternative That's clear enough from Graeber's book. What he wants us to do is think about the uh, problem he's described and analyzed, and I think theologically uh, it represents for us a real crisis in the Reformation doctrine of vocation, that I'm to find whatever I'm doing in the world in terms of my labor as a means of caring, and if it cannot be a means of caring. I'm really conscience-bound, Christianly speaking, to dissent, uh, to withdraw my active support of it. I should not even passively support manipulation, pretense, and um, deception. Uh, that goes into so much of the kind of labor that we're going on, that's going on today. Um, and I'm not calling for a revolution, and I'm not advocating a policy, but I am saying that it's on the conscience of Christians to call a thing what it is. I mean, that's Heidelberg Disputation 101, right? The theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. And I think the BS needs to be named
0: Yeah, you know, I think actually in a way it has been named, and maybe we have a chance to name it more explicitly now, as I have tried to understand why Americans consented to the lockdowns of the degrees that they did. And early in the days, I heard people celebrating it and being relieved that they got a break. But what happened basically is that the um, upper classes whose jobs were either B.S. or filled with B.S. got to opt out. They got to stay home. Lots of things went wrong, like if you suddenly had to homeschool your kids or, you know, you uh, found it was really soul wrecking in a different way to only relate to people by Zoom. There were real costs to that, too. But I think one of the reasons the people with power exceeded so fast to lockdowns is because it gave them a break from BS jobs. But at the cost of pretend valorization of all the working class people who had the shit jobs and were told that they were you know the the primary what were they called frontline workers essential workers and they got all this fake moral praise for going out and doing the job so all the people with bs jobs could stay home with their kids i think that was wow. um, understandable, profoundly corrupt, and the only way to make it right from here is to openly admit that that's what happened and find a way to um, give some real value, (laughs) like money, to the people who hold the shit jobs and to have the people with the the BS jobs to stop, stop colluding with what they're doing and how they're getting compensated for it.
1: Well, Sarah, that raises a big question for me. What if the clergy, what if the clergy acknowledged that their own jobs are so much BS because they so quickly regarded their labor as non-essential service?
0: Hmm. Wow. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of clergy were compassion hacked into thinking that retracting their services was how they were supposed to care for their neighbors. So again, I think it was this this double thing, like I said before, both the best and the worst of things going on at the same time.
1: Well, these are deep and probing thoughts, and I think we better leave our, our listeners uh, perplexed with the problematic rather than trying to f- find a deus ex machina in order to make them all feel good as we conclude this discussion.
0: <laughs> well, um, uh, listeners out there, if if you have a BS job or if your job is being taken over by BS or you care for people who are in BS jobs, um, I think we would really, really value hearing from you and trying to understand this better because... Um, I, I feel in a way this book like touched on things that dad and I have approached from very different directions and um but fine finally found common ground on and and both kind of woke us up to the degree of the crisis that we are living in and I think we both care so deeply I mean in the sense we are really (laughs) true reformation Lutherans we both really love work and valuable work and work that makes a difference and both of us have spent a lot of time doing poorly remunerated work, paying for it in other ways, just for the love of the work itself. And to realize how many people are deprived or blocked of the opportunity even to try is, it, it, I don't know, it it feels like a, a, a horrible tragedy to me in a way that lots of other tragic things don't hit me quite as personally.
1: Wow. Yeah. Amen to that, sister. Let's uh, let's Let's uh, leave it there. To be continued, why do we desire our own subjugation? That's a question we have to keep coming back to.
0: And how can we become unsubjugated without sacrificing the people we love in the process?
1: For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, and submit not again to a yoke of slavery. Only do not let your freedom be a license for sin, but submit to one another in love. Okay, that's the quick answer to the question, but it needs a lot more unpacking.
0: Yeah, well, that that is the truly revolutionary program. Okay, well, next time on the show, actually not Galatians. That was a quote from Galatians, but we will be starting a two-parter on the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlekeywilson.com and paulhenlekey.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.